Right, hello, uh, and welcome to the 21st session of Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, we are now discussing Chapter 14, uh, <coughs> The Multinode, System 5. Uh, so, Beer says about this chapter uh, at the beginning of the section... Uh, excuse me, just a moment. I will... That's some kind of animal trying to get in? It just sounded like there was an enormous dog panting at the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's like a, it's like a handsaw. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, Beer says about this chapter at the beginning of this section, as far as System 5, Chapter 14 is concerned... Where we have finally re uh, where we finally reached the top direction of the firm, I have no treaties to offer on the total role of general management. This book is firstly about the structure of organizations, and one and when one has identified the suite of rooms where the buck stops, there is no more to be said about that. But secondly, it is about the process of regulation. The most important change that has come over the process of top direction in recent years is the replacement by, of autocratic by collegiate authority. On this matter, there is much to say, and two new cybernetic models are developed. The first is a brain model of the college itself. This draws on neurocybernetics at a different level from neurophysiology, uh, which is why this part of the total model is not in part two. Uh, the model is drawn at the level of cells, the neurons of the cortex, and it offers a quantified insight into the process of obtaining reliable decisions from unreliable elements. Let's face it, managers are not machines for pumping out correct answers, and neither, in fact, is the neuron. The second model comes from information theory and offers a totally new approach to the monitoring of complex decisions, while they are being taken by a group such as the first model considers. This second model is almost impossible to understand at all clearly without a fully worked out example, so I have included one, which is as simple as I could make it. But the technique is meant to handle much more, very much more complex problems indeed than this one, and so it has in practice. All right, so uh, the multi-node system five. Uh, my personal thoughts on this um, chapter are that I don't know if there's a lot of value in going through the nitty gritty. Um, I'm especially interested to hear from people who have sort of more experiences with or more experience with search algorithms, what they have to say about it, uh, because, you know, most of the substance of the chapter is uh, search algorithms. And, uh, well, uh, you know, I imagine that the technology has advanced somewhat uh, since Beer's time. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, let's go to, uh, Rudy and then Jeremy. I think Jeremy was before me, but in any case, I was kind of disappointed by this chapter in some way because 
I felt like he bent the math to make the point at times, like the whole way he stacks up probabilities is he makes some assumptions there which are slightly hidden, like the ands and the ors. But in the end, like the whole point of this chapter is to say a distributed decision making where every channel that communicates better with everyone else is much better than a strict hierarchy. And that the strict hierarchies never actually happen in practice rather than the whole search algorithm. So that was my thoughts. Even if the numbers didn't match, is that the distributed decision-making is much better because it inherently is more robust and gets more information. Yeah, uh, there is a pretty uh, straightforward but nonetheless important point there uh, that hierarchical decision-making is inherently lossy. Um, and is going to lead to bad decision making and therefore isn't actually used in practice, even in organizations that purport to do it. Um, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I would break this chapter into three pieces, two of which I like and one I strongly dislike. So I would say the beginning where he describes what a multi-node is, I think, again, Rudy pointed this out. The whole point is to show that top-down hierarchy decision-making in the classical model that you would learn in a business school is pretty much guaranteed to get everything wrong. And the very idea of the CEO knows best is farcical. Um, and I think this is one of the best send-ups of top-down authority making in an organization I've ever seen. I just think it's really good. The second part, talking about how variety management is handled better with a multi-dimensional map than with a unidimensional map, I think that's also very good too, although the example of the geographical map is just a very poor metaphor for what's going on. It's not implemented well. And then the stuff about the decision algebra is just terrible. He does not explain how this thing is an algebra. I mean, the star operator, is it an operator? We don't know. Is it a binary operator? Is it a unary operator? What does concatenation mean? What do parentheses mean? It's never explained, which makes it basically gibberish. I've gone with pencil and paper, and I'm a mathematician. I mean, I've done PhD-level abstract algebra, and I went through with pencil and paper and couldn't make head or tail of it. I just... It, but he also warns you, a paragraph before he begins, that you need to read decision and control to see what decision-making tools people actually use. This is an ad hoc he does for the purpose of demonstrating how to grind bits down to make the decision-making easier, and that it's not really meant to be the actual tool you would use. But it's easy to forget that because the example is so long and confusing that you almost immediately forget that this isn't actually the tool he would use in this situation. When I met Elena Leonard, who worked with Stafford for many years, I asked her about this decision algebra because I've never seen it anywhere else in the literature anywhere. It's not footnoted, and there's nothing about it in the bibliography, so I have no idea where he's getting this decision algebra from or whether he's just inventing it from old cloth. And she said that in her decades of work with Stafford, they never used that tool ever 
and she wasn't familiar where it came from. So, so yeah, we can kind of gloss over this. And mm -hmm. if it were up to me, we can gloss over the decision make decision algebra part. Yeah, because I think it's a wrong turn in the book. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any value in uh, in wasting time with it. Um, okay, let's go to Jake and then Steve. Yeah, I was really lost with that algebra part. I I just I read it, but I was like not at all following it. Um, I'm also kind of like a little unclear on what System Five is. Like, I, I mean, he says it, and like he sort of said it earlier than this chapter, and so I sort of have a conception of it, you know, as like the basically the the thinking part, the conscious part, or the self conscious part, whatever. Um, but like this, I don't that's, feel like this chapter really. That's all going to be covered in the next chapter. Yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say because I started reading the next chapter, and I was like, oh well, this this is a better like this seems like it's an explanation of System Five, uh, similar to how the previous chapters were like an explanation of the system. So I I liked the the description of like why one hierarchical like the hierarchy of management is like dumb. I like that. I think that was that made sense and was like correct but yeah i don't feel like this uh put me any closer to like understanding what system five is or at all how it's like practiced i guess but yeah the first half chapter was good so. yeah definitely uh okay steve and then matt um just a small point um and i did appreciate his discussion about sort of the lossiness in terms of the probability once you start combining lots and lots of different systems. And that's not particularly uh, uh, linked to the hierarchy per se, um, although you know it's implicit in, it in the sense that you have lots of nodes in the multi-node, regardless of how they're organized. It's something that like in my robotics work, you know, I've tried to emphasize because I think it's it's something that's like completely underappreciated or at least swept under the rug. I think here he's being very explicit about how, you know, how quickly it is, it, you can get bad decisions and how they compound. And sure, that's well, well taken and also in the sort of like binary decision making world of management um, is, is something that's going to happen. But like, you know, when you, when you start building really complicated uh, sensor and motor systems, you know, like robots, um, one of the biggest challenges you have in the integration is to try to calibrate everything together into the same sort of reference frames, if, if, if that makes sense. So that like, you know, when you see something and you touch something and you hear something that everything sort of is co-located in space in the, in the same places so that you can make sense and you can take actions to affect the world in that way. But like, if you get any of those wrong, even just by the smallest amount, then everything just falls apart. And the brittleness and the fragility of it is just an overburden, overburdening challenge. And like, it's very quickly to the point where like, you shouldn't expect more than like, you know, five or 10% if that uh, accuracy in what you're doing, which is why so much of the field is driven by like, Hey, I got it on video. Here's this cool Boston Dynamics video. But like, how many thousands of outtakes are there where the robot doesn't actually do that? Um, and again, it's just swept under the rug and why you're only seeing things like Boston Dynamics robot videos and not 
the overabundance deployment of systems of that complexity in the world. They don't exist because things are incredibly not accurate. Um, and I think beer gets to the heart of it here, but like, it's just, it's just combining stochastic system, multiple stochastic systems, you're almost immediately going to get to the point where your reliability is just in the tank, you know, and, um, you know, I, the whole point of this, right, is to overcome that. And that's, that's well, well taken, but, um, it just the math very quickly makes things intractable. And I think like that's just so widely not appreciated. And I think something that like, you know, cybernetics in general really tries to tackle head on. Right. Um, no, that's a very good point. Uh, the, the example there, I would have to actually go back and look at um, this, but uh, it reminded me a lot of um, Cockshot's uh, argument for why delegative democracy is inherently anti-democratic. Um, that that you have a concentration of anti-democratic tendencies at every level of delegate selection. Uh, and so you always will end up with a, uh, elite driven organization, no matter, uh, no matter what, like it, it is, or almost no matter what it, it's, it's, it's a similar order of improbability as the top down organization in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, beer's example here, uh, making the right decision. Right. Uh, so that was interesting to me to see that parallel, but I would have to go back and like look in detail at Cockshot's example again to see if it's really expressing the same principle or if it's something subtly different. Um, anyway, interesting point there. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, 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 I mean, I mean, uh, I, uh, I feel like if uh, Beer's got like a single thesis for for this chapter, it's his utter contempt for, for for other managers and just like management practices in general in his time and place. Because yeah, well, like not only is, is you know he's, he's saying like why it's dysfunctional, but I, I feel like yeah, like like that, that decision algebra that doesn't even like really work. I think that's like him, you know, just like trying to condescend to them and just like you know that that's like the kind of like sort of you know toy model that doesn't work that you would like put on a whiteboard but like you know he's he, you know, he's tr he's trying to say look if you, you, you guys love to fucking think you're, you're you're good at this numbers but i know you don't actually understand them so here's some <laughs> yeah so, so here, here, here's a nice quantitative model that make that makes you think you, you know you're, you're actually smart like he i i find it's just you know it's dripping with contempt for them uh, and also the the um uh, the first part also just reminded me of um uh the um uh you know, uh, Richard Feynman's like um, uh, um, uh, uh, postmortem for uh, the Challenger disaster, where he found that like the, the further you were from the shop floor, the lower the chances you thought were of um, you know of of an accident happening. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, I think it also speaks to like um, you know B B Beer's model there is kind of assuming that you know it's just pure probabilities, but like it's also like it's 
you know, it's a skewed probability, you know, like when the challenger thing, you know, the incentive was always to make it seem like things were better than they were. So, like, you know, you're not just losing information, but like there's also incentives to give a certain kind of information. Yeah. And and to be clear, that's basically Cockshot's point as well about delegative uh, democratic practices. There is because of sort of the meritocratic bias of uh, and the and the class bias of delegate selection, uh, you will always lead uh, end up with a, a non-representative uh, leadership, uh, which is is heavily biased against uh, working class people or people with less education, uh, because of like you know similar to the challenger, the principle of we should launch because that looks good for NASA. Um, just concentrates the further you go up the chain. Um, okay. Well, uh, I think then my feeling about this chapter is we go over the first section, uh, in a little bit of detail and then maybe have a brief discussion about the second section and just drop the third. Um, all right, so um, the direction of the enterprise with its concentration on where we are going rather than where we have come from with its foresight, that is to say, is the thinking part of the whole organization. This, for the body, is the cortex itself, and for the firm, it is the senior management. We may ask how System 5 is organized to deliberate policies and to take decisions. So here we have an orthodox org chart. Um, it is basically uh, you have one leader at the top and then three below that and then three below each of those three. <clears throat> In figure 39 is depicted the highest managerial echelon of the firm, as it might be seen on the typical organization chart. There is MM the manager of the whole enterprise called the chief executive, and he has three main subordinates, M1, 2, and 3, who are directors or vice presidents. Each of these, this is simply a convenience, also has three subordinates, so there are 13 people considered in the illustration. Experienced businessmen would recognize that this picture is intended to show how the chain of command is organized. That is to say, how accountability is distributed. No one of experience would expect this chart to show how the senior echelon actually operates. And yet it is true that some businesses really do operate according to the chart, and the behavior of most businesses is, more or less, off and on influenced by it. Let us consider a very serious decision, requiring a yes or no answer from the boss, and work out how the chart seems to imply correct behavior. Quote-unquote correct behavior. Okay, so the boss sends for M1, 2, and 3 and explains to them the situation. He tells them that each should come and see him independently so that he can concert their views himself. That seems reasonable because if they deliberate together outside and come up back with an agreed solution, what is the boss for? He will hardly contradict their combined view. M1 goes away and summons A, B, and C. These are, of course, his divisional heads, and he repeats to them, his subordinates, exactly what the boss uh, has already said to him. 
And for the same reason, uh, M1 asks his subordinates not to gang up on him. He would rather hear each of them speak independently and then weigh the evidence. Eventually, A comes back with his view to M1, and so on. The protocol is followed throughout. It all sounds both reasonable and stately. One might be tempted to say this is a well-ordered company, not prone to the normal gossip-mongering and squabbling, which, even at the most senior levels, appears to influence many major decisions of many enterprises. All this clear-cut formal behavior looks as though it might work for one major reason. It assumes that everything goes like clockwork in a properly conducted organization and completely ignores the fact that all men are fallible. Consider A. I am sure he is doing his best to give correct advice and that he's consulted his subordinates and they theirs in turn. But after all, A, although only two steps removed from running the company, strictly speaking knows just one-ninth of the total picture. Moreover, his subordinates are a motley crew. Some of them are hardworking, honorable people, but at least a couple are incompetent, and A does not really appreciate the fact. Another, uh, and he is most aggressive and convincing, is primarily concerned with his own ambition to unseat A and take his job. Furthermore, all of A's subordinates are fallible, even when being totally honest, thoughtful, and responsible in their advice. That is because their subordinates, like themselves, have trouble with subordinates. So what is A's advice when he gives it to M1 going to be worth? And how shall we measure that? Certainly, A's advice will not be worth full marks, although the organization chart somehow manages to imply that it will. We might measure its worth over a large sample of incidents by asking how often the advice A gives turns out to be satisfactory, which means accurate, sober, well-judged, in perspective, mindful of implications, careful of staff, and so on. Some readers might feel, contemplating these criteria, that they never receive satisfactory advice. But we must not be too hard on our subordinates, and I shall propose that the advice received, especially at the senior level, is right much more often than not. For instance, we might say that A delivers the goods seven times out of ten. That would be surely a very high score. But of course, the same considerations apply to M1 himself. However, we shall again be kind. Because he is more senior, I take it that he is right, and offers good advice to MM, the boss, eight times out of ten. MM himself, although the boss, really must not be thought infallible, but he did get to the top, so let us judge him right nine times out of ten. All of this, you might think, is most charitable to say the least. Uh, that's my comment. Uh, now we shall work out the implications of this whole scenario, taking a particular example. The answer, we know with hindsight, that the boss has to produce is yes. So the, the correct answer is pre-decided. It is yes, it is one instead of zero. Yes instead of no. This is the right answer in this case. If A is right 7 times out of 10, it means he has a 0.7 probability of being right on this occasion. So has B, and so has C. Because they have been forbidden by M1 to compare notes, their advice is independent. 
Now, M1 is a cautious man, and I propose that on this occasion the matter is so serious that he has made a private deal with himself. He has decided he will not say yes to the decision problem unless each of A, B, and C says yes. So all of them must say yes in order for M1 to say yes. Uh, and they all reach that decision independently. This decision criterion, secretly decided upon by M1, requires that the three subordinates each be independently right at the same time. The probability that this will happen is multiplicative. That is to say, 0.7 times 0.7 times 0.7. Because of the setup and because of his private decision, M1 has a chance of 0.343 of receiving correct advice. For instance, uh, B may not be saying what he really means, and M1 is supposed to detect this. We know that M1's judgments are right only 80% of the time, so if M1 is to pass right advice to MM, his chance of doing so this time is 0.8 times 0.343, which is no more than 0.2744. So in other words, he could only get the right answer 27% uh, of the time. Um, <clears throat> this is where protocol and prudence get you. Now, M2 and M3 have each done the same thing with the same probability of success. So from the point of view of the boss, MM, when he privately sees each of his three deputies, the situation, which he is also playing correctly and prudently, is already rather loaded. Believe it or not, he has also decided not to approve the plan unless M1, M2, and M3 all approve it. <clears throat> the possibility that these three men will all be independently right is no more than the cube of the previous probability, which is just 0 0.02. And of course, Although he is the boss, he himself is prone to misjudge the advice he receives 10% of the time. The final reliability of the decision, therefore, may be calculated as the multiplicative probability that M1, M2, and M3 will be right together, adjusted by his own success factor of 0.9. This works at 0.018, the probability that MM will finally be right. So the outcome for the firm of this spl apparently splendid and sedate setup is that the boss will make less than two correct decisions out of every 100. It is true that I have biased the example by knowing in advance that yes is the right answer. If we did not know this, we could say that MM will not be pushed into backing a wild scheme very easily, which sounds much more sensible. Even so, prudence on such a scale is stultifying. Evidently, enterprises which actually work like this would not succeed. Evidently, also, firms cannot <coughs> be really be organized to operate like this, however the organization chart looks. Let us turn for advice to the brain, to the cortex, where the body's policymaking and decision-taking go on. We have met the neurons before. They are the individual decision takers of the brain insofar as they receive the variety of inputs and have to take a decision which says either yes or no. Their axons must fire or not fire. If we look at a piece of cortex under the microscope, we shall find that the manager neuron is far, far less reliable than we have assumed the human manager to be. 
All right, so any comments about uh, the uh, little farcical scenario that Beer sets up here? Uh, Shane, go ahead. This um, this whole, like, um, kind of fragmented image, right, the, the epistemological fragmentation of, like, um, stitching together the thing stems directly from the capitalistic bourgeois brain rot that is the kind of micro-tyranny mindset, where right up at the start, that... The subordinates are forbidden from collaboration. They must report to him independently. And he, the king, will integrate the information. And this, this is the homunculus theory of, of organization, where a little man, literally a little man at the nexus of coordination, will perform this social function. And yeah, it, it's absolutely degenerate. It, it guarantees the wrong answer every fucking time. And it, it flows directly from the structure of ownership and of... of um, of the way power works in the society, right? Like, the, no, the, the, little, the little man will decide, and that's how shit's going to be. And it, it guarantees failure. There's, there's no other way it could be. And it, it also means that, like, trying to do Bolshevism again, again or whatever is, is guaranteed to the same failure. It also means that the reactionaries who are like, oh, we should just put a king in that seat, are also guaranteed to failure. None of this shit will ever work. It can't. You know, it, it, uh, it, um, it's, it's a completely warped way of, of going about things. Now, Beer does say that, like, in practice, things work otherwise. But this is the image of themselves that these people have. It's the image of their own organizations. And that still distorts things. So what you'll find in a lot of organizations is that there's a kind of shadow network of information flows behind the scenes that are unofficial and not officially supported and are always at threat of being axed. Um, when it is when it becomes inconvenient for power, um, so you know it, 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 he's right that like this 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 can't actually be how things work because nothing's workable this way. But things still tend this way, and you get you get outright failures like Sears, right? Like the kind of sometimes the the, the true psycho bullshit of that kind of Randian capitalistic ideology does actually get its day in the sun and completely fucks it, like unequivocally fucks it. Um, Luckily, most of the time, they don't actually get to operate this way, but they, they get to pretend they operate this way, which conditions their own brains, which um, it's, it's poisonous, ghastly stuff. Yeah, uh, so this sort of applies to all autocracies, right? And uh, I think we had in the Discord uh, this week, uh, someone posted the person who actually came up with the org chart in the first place, and they were a, a military, military man. Uh, so that was the kind of tyranny they were operating with. Um, but it was still basically operating on the same principles. Uh, okay, so Jeremy and then Matt. We live, those of us who are in technology, we have got these like tech lord, billionaire genius, in air quotes, people. And it makes you wonder, like, if... Tesla worked only according to Elon Musk's whims. It would be a smoking crater. There must be a system, secret system in play that keeps Elon Musk's whims from completely fucking up their organization all the time. But we don't know anything about that. And we see this, I mean, in most, you know, I... I know people at Facebook and Google and Amazon and most of these big companies, and I have no idea how they keep 
their companies from shitting the bed. Like, and yet they do. So there, there has to be something else going on. I mean, the times where you see these hierarchies totally reinforced, like, I mean, the, the example that comes to mind for me that's had a real impact on my historical epoch is the U.S. occupation of Iraq following the 2003 invasion, where you had a bunch of brain genius neocons who had these fantastic Pinochet-style ideas on how a government should be run that were just like utterly barking insane. And it was very clear that none of them understood Iraqi culture or Arab culture in any way whatsoever. They thought they could go in there and create kind of the ultimate Randian system. And the only thing that kept it afloat was that the USA was willing to pump trillions of dollars into the failures to keep them going for a decade. And, but there's been no repercussions for that. So it seems like if you have enough money, you're shielded from consequence, no matter how barking your ideas are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was uh, playing uh, Disco Elysium the other day. And uh, they talk about the last monarch of the city you're in and how he just like, what did he do? Tons of drugs, filled his palace with like absurd extravagances. And this cavalry officer uh, or this cavalry officer that you talk to uh, will just defend him to the very end is like, oh, no, we failed him. Like, surely, surely these extravagances he were he was undertaking are just indications of how heavy the load was, how heavy the crown weighed. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, Matt and then Steve. Yeah, my, uh, it, it is interesting how uh, he, he, he gets that, um, uh, um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, like a Fuhrer principle or, or whatever, or, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Bogdanov, um, wrote this book, uh, uh, Philosophy of Living Experience, um, uh, uh that, uh, read last year. And like, you know, he, he talks about, um, uh, uh, what he calls like authoritarian causality that, um, uh, uh that, you know, like the dom, it was the dominant philosophical paradigm in like, you know, in like feudalism. And, uh, um, yeah, and that, and that is like just like, like it's how people like just thought the world worked that and uh, you know and and uh, you know it, it under capitalism it gets replaced by um uh so, something else that um i i forget exactly the term but it's like you know things happen because like they they need to happen um uh but like you know like we've still got you know these layers you know here you know like it's it's this organic process and so it is interesting how like yeah like uh, um things get like embodied in these people even when like you know, on some level, you have to know that that's not how it actually works. You know, that, that also was interesting that, that, you know, like Beer's thing is descriptive as much as it is prescriptive. You know, he, he's saying that, you know, no, no organization, you know, because it's impossible, like no organization 
I'm not telling you to not run your organization like this because no organization can work like this. It's not even about like a justice thing. You know, the East India Company, you know, couldn't have actually worked like this. It had to have had, you know, like networks of, uh, um, you know, like uh, uh, um, of, of communication and stuff that are that were that were more organic. Um, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it is interesting how, how you see this like. And, you know, th these complex networks just embodied in these people, like you'll hear people, um, uh, you know, talk about like Assad or Putin, as opposed to like, you know, these complex layer networks of like military personnel and intelligence personnel and oil men and stuff like, you know, it's not like this one guy. And if you change the one guy, then everything changes. You know, that that, that person's just like the, the most visible symbol of like this whole, you know, thing. Right. Uh, indeed. And uh, Steve, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, three things, I guess. So, like, one, I think what's a little bit missing in sort of the math, I guess, if you want to even say that. I mean, what he's doing is presenting sort of like a, if you take a step back and look at this, like, overall, you're probably not going to get things right. But, you know, what it is missing is that as you go up the chain of command or whatever, like, you know, some of these weak probabilities or whatever, like people do make the right decisions. And once they do, like from that perspective up the hierarchy, it doesn't matter if, you know, there was a 90% or a 99.9%, um, uh, you know, likelihood of getting it right. So like, you know, with competent people in there being able to assess these decisions and then often getting it right, then sure. Okay. You're going to get things that at least sometimes are functional. I think that like, what we with Jeremy, Jeremy's example with the RF4, like that's a good example where you don't have competent people at the nodes, right? Because they're all political hacks, and so you were you were making having people make all sorts of bad decisions constantly, and so it was quickly showing like you know how tenuous the whole structure is when you when you do this. But yeah, if you shovel money into it, you can hide a lot of things um, for sure uh, because that just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're making bad decisions. But it also, the what's also missing, I guess, is that like in all of these situations or the bigger bigger situations, you also have these shadow networks too, which are there to cover up the fact that bad decisions are being made, right? And you're pumping almost just as much, if not more, effort, money, time uh, into into that network so that you're just obfuscating the whole thing. So you know things are much less tenuous or you know, in general, but as long as you can hide it and have a good PR team or whatever, then you can clearly get away with a lot. And, um, you know, that's not good. <laughs> we should get rid of that. Sure. Uh, I mean, there is a sort of assessment of organizational health that people in the organization are going to make, uh, which I think beer mentions as a system four thing in the previous chapter. Uh, and, it's all. It's also true that you have the managers trying to massage this image to make it more uh, appealing than it really is. Uh, so that's another dimension to this. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, of course, with this example you have competent people at every level of the organization is the way it's set up. Uh, but the thing that makes it so vanishingly improbable that it will work is that like every, like at, at every level, all three people have to agree 
for it to go ahead uh, independently without talking to each other. Um, so you just have those those failure chances increase, increase, and increase. Um, all right, so uh, we will we'll take a look at uh, the next section, uh, which is about uh, a sort of proposed neural alternative model. Um, in the first place, many of the dendrites, the nerve processes which attach themselves as input channels to the neuron, peter out in mid-cortex. That is... They do not reach the neuron to which they look as if they were going on at all. Second, or sorry, secondly, since the input that actually does arrive at a given neuron is the output of other neurons, each unreliable, the neuron under consideration is bound to be pretty unreliable in terms of its input. Next, as we saw earlier, the neuron firing threshold is critical. And we know that this changes as a result of all sorts of biochemical activity. For example, quite a modest amount of alcohol will totally change the threshold of millions of neurons distributed throughout the cortex and in an unknown way. It has indeed been proposed that the transfer function of a neuron is an eighth-order nonlinear differential equation in which all the variables are subject to subtle changes on the microsecond scale. Next, and without wishing to cause any sort of alarm, it has been estimated that some 100,000 neurons in our brains go fut every day. They just fuse themselves and cease to exist. Moreover, they cannot be replaced. This kind of tissue being, unusually for the human body, non-regenerative. So the brain is very, very much worse off in the caliber of its executive neurons than is the firm. But the brain works. Although people imbibe large quantities of alcohol, they do not really lose their ability to behave roughly as human beings. Though an old man may retain no more than two-thirds of his original complement of neurons, he usually retains a fully paid-up uh, he really usually remains a fully paid-up human being until the end. But note some signs of senility that are likely to be attributable to this cause. Uh, impossible not to think of Joe Biden here. Uh, the, the fact is that the brain handles these problems exactly as does the firm. Neurons do not work independently, but reinforce each other. Managers, too, are not, as a matter of fact, often isolated in the way the chart seems to entail. In short, System 5 is not the collection of nodes logically organized to be precise and well-mannered that our first model suggested. It is instead... Uh, whether made of neurons or managers, an elaborately interactive assemblage of elements. I call it the multi-node. Then let us, by all means, try to draw a better org chart than we had in figure 39. An attempt to do so appears in figure 40, and it will at once be noted by anyone who has ever looked at a book about the brain that this diagram, save for the letters, looks extremely like a chunk of cortex. In fact, we are now resolving our model of the nervous system to a level of detail much finer than before, and we pass here from the consideration of neurophysiology to that of neurocytology. Cytology is the science dealing with the cells themselves. This new organization is still concerned with the interaction between 13 top managers who look exactly as they did before in real life. 
but it is now conceded that A, B, and C are in a communication with each other and are capable of formulating a view. What is not conceded is that a single transmission of this view to M1 will necessarily convey their considered opinion. Three transmission lines have appeared between the concerted outlook of these subordinates and their chief. This accords with cortical architecture. It also accords with behavior in a real enterprise. On any serious topic, neither the boss nor his subordinate is likely to be content with one excursion into the problem which has to be resolved, given that the problem is at all difficult. My example assumes that there will be three efforts to get across what we think to the boss. So say the subordinates. The boss may view this operation as three attempts on his part to find out what the hell they are really thinking. Um, so we have uh, M1 is connected by these various channels, these three thick channels to A, B, and C here, um, which you know are very sort of rhizomatic uh, in their connections. Uh, <clears throat> So, uh, secondly, the picture given in section 40 does not conceal the undoubted fact that A, B, and C talk to other seniors than M1, even though they are not responsible to them. Of course they do, and the other seniors want it that way. Uh, want it that way. After all, in any given case, M1 may be making one or two of his gross errors of misjudgment out of every ten. Besides, all concerned know that there are many ways of illuminating problems, and their discussion is a growth process. It is not really a question of counting the heads pro and con. So this model, based on neurocytology, allows each of the three inputs to M1, M2, and M3 will not only be repeated three times to each of these seniors, but will be relayed to other seniors as well. Finally, it is important to pull down M.M., although he is the boss, from his pedestal. He does not sit in an isolated state, or if he does, he will not be the boss for long. If he treats his three immediate subordinates with any respect, that is to say as colleagues among whom he is primus inter pares, then he will join in the decision-taking process with them. Moreover, he himself is not above receiving messages from the next stage down. M1, 2, and 3 may, in a protocol-written organization, uh, vigorously complain that there are direct channels of communication between their subordinates and their boss. But in any real situation, which is at all robust, this is exactly what happens. A does not entirely trust M1's judgment, perhaps, and besides, this is a real world, A wishes to register personally with MM. For his part, M.M. does not want his life sources chopped off by M1. Who are these people who advise M1? What are they really like? And are they any good? For this has a bearing on the value of M1's advice, and so on. Thus we find in Figure 40 an account of a brain-like organization for the top-level decision process. There, as before, are the 13 executives, but this time they are seen to be organized sensibly. Now, let us calculate, on precisely the same presumptions as before, the reliability of the decision which the boss will transmit. Given that all 13 men are prone to error, it might appear that all their mistakes will now often be repeated, so that the outcome is worse than before. Not so, as we shall see. Uh, anyone have comments about this section? 
Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I think this is this is a pretty good section. I, I like you know how he's talking about sort of the multiple ways in which the connections between the like the people. I guess in this case, the senior managers, right? Um, actually, add up to something worthwhile. And I think it, this is like again where the analogy between like the neurons like is really key, like, and really, like, um, really fits well, you know? Um, and I, I think something about the, the sort of like he, he, how he talks about the, um, the connections between the neurons, like there are a lot of connections at the beginning and then they kind of get pruned off as they don't get used. I think shows to like, when we think about like, what is the, like, how do we implement this kind of thing? Like, what does it look like in practice? You know, I think, like obviously, well, not obviously, but thinking about extending it past just like like what does senior management look like in a in a place where there's not technically senior management, you know, like is it like elected leadership of like an organization or is it just like all people, all members of an organization? You know, I think this is where the like allowing for discussion between people in an organization like is key, and it's like you'll build that builds the kind of connections and then the ones that aren't used just die, you know, quote unquote, like the people that decide not to use like a organization wide, like discord or something, that means they're just kind of left out of the process. And I think, you know, work needs to be done to like integrate people into the process. You know, it's like kind of an ongoing thing, especially like, you know, if you're an organization that wants more people to join, then you kind of constantly need to be like refreshing people's memory that like, Oh yeah, this thing is this, by the way, like, just in case you haven't seen it, like here's this place to do this discussion or like, here's the channels to have these things happen. And I think there's like resistance to this among like the left, among some people on the left, people that don't want to like give up their, give up their control, right. Give up their control of information flow or people that are mistrustful that, the people are going to use it in the way that they want to use it, which is like, yeah, maybe they're not, but that doesn't mean it's bad, you know? Um, so I think, and I think this is like one of those things I'm still a little confused, I guess, or I'm, I'm curious about like how this kind of integrates into the actual, like whole picture of what system five is. Um, Cause I know it was talked about some time ago of like, uh, I think it was Allende or whoever said like system five is the people. And it's like, I'm kind of struggling to figure out like, so what does that mean in this kind of instance? Like, how does that, does that just mean like the link there must be like links between all the people so that decisions can have input from all the people, which like I agree with, but like, I'm just, I don't know if that's what sort of you could kind of make that connection or, or what, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. So hopefully we'll get a little bit more detail about that in uh, maybe a little bit in in this next upcoming chapter, but probably in the final section of the book more so, uh, I would expect. Um, so Jeremy and then Matt. So one of the later beer inventions in the 90s I don't know how familiar you all are with Team Integrity, but it was an attempt that Beer came up with to create a multi-node to do decision-making. And 
it uses geometry. Basically, I don't know how many of you can visualize an icosahedron, like a 20-sided die from D&D. But imagine that each person is an edge on that icosahedron and that each vertex is a topic worthy of discussion needed in a decision-making process. So each person touches two vertices, and because they touch two vertices, they're on those two teams. And your idea, each team has five people on it because five edges meet in a single vertex. And through a series of iterations, you do all the teams meet three, four times stackable over the course of a week. Your ideas reverberate all around the sphere over and over again with the hope that you reach some sort of consensus. And so Beer took the question of what is a multi-node very seriously and came up with an incredibly specific answer that suffers from being too specific. It only works with 30 people and attempts to change the number of participants into something that doesn't map cleanly onto a platonic or Archimedean solid kind of fell apart. Um, but he was very, very interested in coming up with multinodal processes that were absolutely non-hierarchical. Every edge is equidistant from the center. So there is no boss. There's no that everybody in the multi-node has exactly the same level of hierarchy. But uh, if you ever read the book Beyond Dispute, The Invention of Teams Integrity is a book-length treatment of Beer's attempt to do a multi-node. All right. And Matt, go ahead. Yeah, uh, for, for for system five, I, I think uh, one, one one thing that's important and uh, you know that that you can get gets with it with this integration is that like you know uh, the, the senior management aren't like doing integrations like constantly. I think uh, um, you know the the trick is uh, that um, system five works at a totally different time scale than like everything else. Like uh, you know, like your conscious mind, you know, I mean, works a lot more slowly than you know. You're, you're making way fewer decisions like per minute than uh, um, you know like a, a a skin cell lot like uh, uh and and so you know like your system five can be like a committee that meets six you know um, uh, 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 tw- twice a year and then you know the, and then the people that are there are system five and then and they're setting like the sort of high level um uh, um you know like like parameters you know that um that, that wind up like governing like uh, uh other stuff um uh, and i think um yeah like uh like uh, uh jake was saying with um uh, getting rid of um uh 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 uh, entrenched like um, uh, leadership, you know. I, th- I think, uh, yeah. Th- another thing that he's kind of getting at with uh, this integration is uh, that you know it's maybe even like cockshot style sortition that, or uh, you know, the, the, which you can even see. I think in like um like academic departments. Like my understanding is that uh, you know, um, yeah, being chair of the department isn't like something that you are for years and something that people want. It's like a burden that you know people pass around, you know, uh, like year after year. And uh, I, I think like that's kind of beers like. Um, um, uh, uh, model, but like, uh, yeah, that, that it's, you know, it, it, it's this temporary thing that, you know, and, and that, that it is just one of the hats that you wear sometimes. 
Oh, and also one, one last thing about that. In, in terms of like neural things like like that that are understood differently now, uh, th- this is actually one of the ones that's like very different. Like uh, you, you totally make new brain cells like all the time. Right. Uh, yeah, I th- thought that was the case. <laughs> uh, so you know these uh, these these examples between the the firm and the brain actually are are more parallel than uh, Beer thought at the time. Uh, Rudy, go ahead. Yeah, I'm thinking now of the episode from your podcast on the the conference of inspired by Beer with the icosahedron and how that was a way of getting communication across. And there was also a comment on the podcast by Y Fury by the Todd McGowan and his student on how they ran experimental conference where there were no name badges and no nothing and nobody was allowed to do anything just to experiment and how like, you know, modern day conferences are so hierarchical and so linear, nothing ever gets sorted. So I'm wondering if, you know, it would be good to start thinking of new methods of doing meetings rather than these linear serial meetings, which are so kind of ineffective in many ways right and and that's that's definitely like an application of team's integrity that has been uh explored uh so yeah i think you're you're completely right there um shane uh and then jake yeah when i was at metaforum we ran a session that lasted a couple of hours that was like a kind of uh modified team's integrity it was more like a triangle and they'd figured out uh, a way of just kind of making it work. But the general pattern still worked. It was this notion that you were kind of doing this rotation around a shape and revisiting the same topics a couple of times, but with slightly different configurations and everyone's at the same level. Um, I think it's a really interesting avenue for further exploration. I think you could probably work out ways of... Um, like generating, like given a number of topics and a number of people, you could generate a rotation and just like, cause we were all given, like we were all put on like, uh, colored teams for each topic and then just giving, given like a spreadsheet of like, go to this room at this time, do the session, go to the next, this room, this room. And it's all kind of worked out ahead of time, the way you'll move around the shape. Um, I think that could be, could be very, um, very relatively easily worked out. And I think it's, 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 uh, we got a lot more done in a couple of hours than the usual meeting format, like what Rudy was saying, like, um, we should almost certainly be looking at abandoning the usual meeting format in favor of something similar to this, even if it's not perfect. Uh, like a degenerate form of centigration is vastly better than what we're accustomed to. Yeah, uh, I feel like I need to keep that in mind in my personal life so I don't keep doing useless meetings. Uh, uh, Jake, go ahead, and then we're going to wrap this uh, section up, I think. Yeah, yeah, that I remember, uh, I think that was one of the first episodes that I heard of uh, the podcast that really like hooked me into it. It was very interesting. And uh, yeah, I definitely like, think about that a lot of like, what are ways we could like kind of have different ways of meeting that are like actually more useful. Um, I guess one thing is like with that like thing at the metaphor, like there was already kind of a goal in mind. And for some meetings where you don't have necessarily a goal in mind or like part of the meeting is to develop the goal or to develop the whatever, then it's maybe like a different thing would be more useful or different strategy would be more useful. But um, also just like, 
like there are ways of like I don't know. I feel like now that all these meetings are happening via like Zoom and stuff, you know, there's like more creative ways that you can use. Like I know we've I've done meetings where it's like we all have uh, like a, a Google slideshow thing that we all like 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 a, a slide that's just a bunch of empty sticky notes, and then you type in sticky note, you type in stuff on the slide, and then you all drag like a bunch of stars there in the corner to the sticky notes, you know. And so it's like a way of like allowing for more variety and like better better communication of that, I think, than just like one person talking, then another person talking, then another person talking, which like especially on like online meetings can be very like can take a lot more time than it would like in real life. Um but yeah, just different ways of doing that I think is very interesting and worth exploring. And so those stars are like uh attention markers, like I want to discuss this, I want to explore this. Yeah, or like, like, uh, we did a, a thing where we did that, and then drag star, drag stars that, and basically like said like, okay, we'll talk about the ones that have like the most stars, like the top five yeah. or whatever. Right. There's a way of like narrowing down the kind of scope of discussion. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. That also sounds good. Uh, all right. So let's wrap up this section here. Uh, 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 uh n there are still three messages coming up each line, but they are not independent. Each message still has a 30% chance of being wrong, but the joint's chance is 0.3 cubed. The probability that A will now receive a correct message from his own staff has therefore become 1 minus 0.3 cubed or uh, 0.973. But each senior manager is now receiving the message from each of the three sources, which gives him a multiplicative probability of being right equal to the cube of the last figure, adjusted by his own probability of being uh, right equal to the cube of the last figure, uh, uh, sorry, uh, adjusted by his own probability of making a correct judgment. Now we said that M1, 2, and 3 had a 0.8 probability of making a right judgment, whereas the boss, MM, had a 0.9 chance. The model proposed treats the boss as a colleague of his three subordinates, so that there are four people equivalently deliberating this problem as a consortium, each with an average possibility of being right 82.5% uh, of the time. This means that any one of the four have a chance of being right, which is now P equals, uh, sorry, P equals the absolute value. Is this absolute value markers? I can't quite read the text there. Brackets. Yeah, it's just brackets. Okay, so yeah, P equals uh, 1 minus 0.3 cubed, uh, 3 of those times 0.85 or 0.825. Or in other words, 0.76 uh chance of being correct but before because all four of them are deliberating together the total chance of making an error is the fourth power of the chance that any one will make an error in other words capital p equals uh 1 minus p uh to the 4 equals 0 0.0033 uh, so that is their chance of making an error. Uh, so the probability of this entire system will yield the wrong answer turns out to be one-third of one percent. 
In other words, this management group will, as a whole, hardly ever make a mistake, as long as its members really collaborate. This is how the brain does the trick, and this is how successful managements already work. It is the way to get reliable results out of unreliable components. All I have tried to do is provide a cogent explanation for their mutual success. But what surely follows from this is that we ought to retain in our heads a better account of the organization of the enterprise than our orthodox charts supply and make various admissions which appear to conflict with the orthodox principles of management. We ought in particular to admit, one, that any boss is a colleague, primus inter pares, of a group which includes his subordinates. Two, that one man, one boss principle may work in some contexts, there will be only one salary, hopefully, uh, but that protocol must not forbid rich interactions throughout a group. And three, that there is necessarily more communication between people at the same level in the enterprise, by far, than there is between seniors and juniors. I mean, this is just obvious if you think about, like, uh, school cohorts, right? Your seniors and your juniors in school. Uh, this is especially obvious in Japan, where you have the, the senpai-kohai relationships, so these are very formalized relationships, uh, and then the people uh, among the same age cohort or same grade cohort will communicate a lot more than they do if they're senpai or they're kohai. Um, the first uh, two points, and the third to a lesser extent, emerge from our analysis. More telling evidence for the third point, however, comes from behavioral science, where many measurements have been made which clearly indicate the truth of the assertion. In the diagram, these horizontal pathways have been no more than indicated because the picture is already complicated enough as it is. The next question is, <clears throat> how on earth can this kind of system be controlled? Anyone reading this who quickly appreciated that in real life groups of people operate as in figure 40 rather than 39 will have considered that I have been busily, dis I have been busily discovering the Mediterranean. Of course, people work like this, he may have thought. The operation of such a system is usually called politics, and success goes to the politically skilled because of the immense complexity of the communication paths. Moreover, the whole ethos of the multi-node is political. There are manifest opportunities to manipulate other people to one's own ends, to renege on one's boss or, or one's staff or one's colleagues. But there must be a better answer than this. The reason we need a better answer is that the multi-node as we know it may actually work, but it takes far too long to work successfully. Its methods were evolved in a more leisurely age, and we, invest and, and we investigated in part one the reasons why more rapid means of adaptation are necessary in a technologically exploding environment. Now, the multi-node often involves many more people than the small number we have so far considered. People, furthermore, who do not stand in easily demarcated hierarchical positions in relation to each other. The multi-node may include colleagues in other countries whose status vis-a-vis -vis the people here is fairly obscure. And even pseudo-colleagues, such as senior civil servants in government departments whose views bear on industrial decisions, who have no institutional status at all. Then there are advisors and specialists of many kinds who may be, for example, in consulting firms or universities, 
whose views are important to the decision, but who again have no hierarchical rank. All this makes the real problems of real multinodes much more difficult than the problem facing our fabricated sample organization of figure 39. Fortunately, however, the neurocybernetic model we have proposed fits this more complex reality better still. We claim we know how the whole thing works. The problem is to make it work more quickly. That must surely mean the introduction of discipline and order of some sort into the situation. It also means, however, that no measures may be adopted which would at the same time put the remarkable freedom of action and the wonderful flexibility of the multinode in jeopardy. If people could see how to do this without putting themselves and their organizations into a straitjacket, there is some chance that they would adopt new techniques. One method we ought now to agree must be excluded, although it is the one method most usually attempted in practice, because no one can think of anything else. This is the method of rigorous protocol. The artificial example just denounced was given to make it clear why this approach to the problem does not work. Explicitly, it denatures the system itself, with all its inbuilt capacity to generate right answers. Let us then approach the problem in a scientific way, using what we have learned from cybernetics, and specifically preserving the characteristics of redundancy and flexibility which make real multinodes so robust in their ability to generate right answers. Here follows a cybernetic plan. The first difficulty is to know what kind of problem the multinode actually solves. It does not devote itself, its seniority and power, to the determination of trivial outcomes, or it ought not to do so. It is likely to be setting a policy, settling a policy of great importance, and therefore considerable complexity. Thus it is that people think of thinking as a large or as a process of synthesizing an integral but elaborate conclusion from a large number of component parts. The decision is seen as a rococo edifice built up clause by legal clause. This is perhaps why there are endless drafting problems facing anyone trying to promulgate an agreed decision. The cybernetician adopts the contrary position. The output of the thinking process, the decision has the following form, do this rather than anything else. When the process of thinking originally starts, the multi-node is faced, not indeed with a number of building bricks in an edifice, but with a seemingly infinite number of possible outcomes uh, between what it must choose. It is the existence of this plethora of possibilities that cries out for decision in the first place. Then, under this model, the process we seek to assist is one of chopping down ambiguities and uncertainties until we may say, do this. In short, we would like to measure the variety of the complex decision at the start, uh, measure the reduction of variety brought about by each conclusion reached in the process of thinking things out, and in general, monitor the entire operation of the multi-node as the variety comes down to a value of one the decision itself. To do this, we shall need two tools, a paradigm of logical search and an actual metric, a rule and a scale for measuring uncertainty. All right. So uh, sort of uh, some final thoughts on this uh, section. Uh, at least we have uh, five and a half minutes left. Uh, Shane, go ahead. 
I, I love this. I love this shit at the end here. Um, cause like it's, we shouldn't think of these things as accumulations as like building up something. We're throwing fucking everything out except for one thing. This is selection, right? And this like, if you think like your, your sort of natural selection, all those kind of things, cybernetics with its like information theory basis and like selection communication as the selection of a message from a space of possible messages. Like the words I just said there, I haven't like built them up. I have thrown away every other possible word that I could ever have said and only selected these few words. So it's, we're, we're focusing on pruning the space of possible actions down to the one that we will actually do rather than building up an accumulation of actions. This is a really good inversion. Like just throw, throw fucking everything else out. This biases us towards throwing things away throwing away possibilities, just cleaving off entire sections of the space and just like, no, get the fuck rid of it. Don't want that. And then you're carving it down and down and down rather than like hoarding little bits and pieces together like a squirrel. Right. Um, I was for grad school reading a paper recently uh, that was an account of the deliberation and negotiation process that uh, was undertaken to decide the sustainable development goals, the SDGs, uh, that, that followed up on the, uh, millennium development goals, uh, that were taken by the UN. Um, and it was very much a process of the sort that you were describing there, uh, Shane, in terms of just this accretion of, uh, points. Uh, you know, as Beer says it, clause by clause, uh, building it up. Um, and, uh, you know, the author was saying like, well, this is so great. We've come up with these SDGs. Uh, we went through this whole process and look at how wonderful they are. And I was like, at the end, I was like, yeah, but you didn't decide anything. Like, uh, you know, the, the author was saying, well, there is this minor issue that uh, the rich countries and the poor countries couldn't decide in any way whatsoever what a fair allocation of resources would look like. But eh, it's not really that important. Like we, we made the SDGs and they're so nice and shiny and uh, that pretty much uh, is worth it. Uh, so, you know, big pats on the back for everyone all around. Um but like, you know, nobody ex like nobody outside of the global governance bubble expects the SDGs to achieve anything like in the in the sense that they uh, they state like, for example, the first SDG is eliminate all poverty everywhere. Nobody who is not in this group or in that group would expect that the SDGs are going to eliminate poverty globally. It's like, oh yeah, uh-huh, I'm sure you really got all the parties to commit to that, to actually make a decision to do that. No, it's just bullshit. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think that this idea that like your sort of UN level uh, system five organizations that are making these really difficult uh, global decisions uh, should actually decide on something is is well worthwhile. Uh, Matt, go ahead. 
Yeah, uh, this also made me think of times when, like, uh, you know, when, like, the, the high-level decisions uh, have, like, actually been helpful, when it's, like, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, they're um, they're making a decision that's really not like a technical problem. Like it is, you know, there are certain things where like there's no right answer for like how um, much you know you want to prioritize like ease of use versus security or you know like uh, or risk versus reward. You know, the, 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 you know, uh, uh, like I'm a data scientist. I can build lots of different models of different things. I can, I can identify the trade offs, but ultimately, like I need like you know the client to actually say you know like this X is more important than Y. You know, like if, if there's a trade-off between X and Y, you know, choose Y, and you know, that, that, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, there's that interplay between like, uh, you know, the, the uh, implementation or optimization and just like what the actual objectives are. When in you know, it's, you know, it's not a technical problem to, to decide, you know, what like, uh, yeah, what like how much, you know, um, uh, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, um, exploitation versus exploration like there should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um... That's a, that's a more fine green thing to decide, and, and you won't want to offload that on System 5. Uh, now, Shane, go ahead. Uh, one last point, I guess. Um, the thing I brought up about like uh, communication, right, like information theory, um, also brings us a sort of an interesting and I think important thing here that in inform with information, the amount of information contained in a selection is kind of proportional or in some proportion to the space of possible selections. So if you have an extremely wide space of possibilities, such as the entire English language, selecting some portion of it actually has quite a lot of meaning, whereas the sun rising tomorrow has no meaning whatsoever because nothing else could have possibly happened. So like when we take decisions, we have to actually, like to, to meaningfully take a decision, you have to prune an extremely large possibility space down to a particular set of actions, whereas deciding like, I'm going to keep breathing isn't a particularly brave decision. It's like, well, what, what the fuck else were you going to do? You know? And like, it's, it's similarly when, when a company says like, you know, we, we value professionalism. Well, fucking of course you do. Nobody's going to take the other side of that bet. Like nobody's going to say that they, they value unprofessionalism. Like, come on. So it's like, it's, it's contentless sort of statements. Similarly with decisions, we have to like really be honest about like, what are we actually deciding on? And what, what are the space of alternatives? Because, like when I know I keep coming back to it when Trump's going out to sell newspapers, like, of course they fucking do. What else are they going to do? Like going out on a Saturday to sell those fucking papers. There's no content. There's no information content there. It's not a decision because like, that's what they do. Like it's, it's, it's the thing they fucking do every week. Like it's, when they decide, you know, the brave decision to go out on a Saturday and fucking try and flog newspapers at the side of the road. It's like, yeah, it's not a decision. You, you were going to fucking do that anyway. Right. Deciding to do something novel would be a decision, but that kind of shit's just habit, you know. We kind of have to assess like what what space of possibilities are we working in, and are we really deciding amongst that space, or are we just kind of going through the motions? Yeah, it's a good old difference repetition, right? Um, uh, and yeah, you I mean you know the the sort of mo most meaningless decisions are the tautological ones, right? It's like we're going to be what we are. Okay, great. Uh, um, yeah, Jake, uh, go ahead. Yeah, that definitely like agree with that. I think you know, and it kind of goes back to right the like amount of variety your like system is or your organization is set up to handle, and and of course like getting it back to like system five is like how how are those big like total organizational shifts decided 
which is, I guess, kind of making me feel a little more confident in like that I understand a bit more of what System 5 is, especially like thinking about it as like the people or thinking about it as like the basically the mass or the, the group that is ultimately like going to be driving what is happening in the organization, right? And from a firm's perspective, it's like the senior management and like the and the, the board and all that stuff. But like from a socialist perspective, you know, it should be the people, it should be the masses. And, you know, when you think about like a trot organization versus like some other kind of organization, you know, it's like there's, you know, if you want to, I hate to use the word like revisionism or whatever, but like think of it like as a turn away from the masses or of the working class, a turn away from that towards the more like, well, the people that are going to, are that line up with this, with the variety that we're uh, able to handle, which is like people that want to stop and like talk to you at a farmer's market on a Saturday about a socialist newspaper or whatever, um, you know, is not, is not actually the working class. Right. And so when you think about like strategy for like actually like achieving socialism or for like building a mass, like a revolutionary party or whatever, it's like, you have to be thinking of the working class as the base or the people in like the society as the base from which you need to like build the organs of the working class decision-making process and like control process, control of themselves, obviously, but like it has to come from that. And I think, you know, like all these, so many of these like little sets like get it wrong because they're, because they only know what they know, you know, and they, think that what they know will work if they just give it the right time and right circumstances. But it's like both of those things, like the right time and the right circumstances happen, but like you can also miss them if you're not the right set, like if you're not organized in the right way, because you're not attuned to that kind of variety. You're not able to take in the kind of input that you need in order to like actually build socialism, whatever that looks like. Well, you know, you know to to sort of uh, take an invariant program as your organizational and strategic uh, perspective is basically trying to make a virtue out of the statement that a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, in in status quo, which is Beer's take on Marx's capital, there's a diagram where it shows that capital organizes and forms system fives but that the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is constantly scrambling proletarian system fives. And so there's a vortex that, that organizes the bourgeoisie and disorganizes the proletariat that's constantly disrupting the proletarian multinode. Ain't wall consolidating the bourgeois multinode. And that's class struggle. At its core, class struggle is the attempt for the proletariat to build its own System 5, its dual power System 5, and have that System 5 supplant the System 5 of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. 
And what we found in 150 years of Marx and beyond is that it's really bloody hard to come up with a system five for the proletariat that can survive. I mean, one of the things that was infuriating to other Bolsheviks about Lenin is that Lenin's programs kept changing. You know, that he would, you know, the April theses were so controversial that no Bolshevik paper would publish them. You know, so there's some really weird dynamic there with it, with Lenin constantly changing the rules up because he saw the circumstances changing in very dramatic fashion with a system that could not keep up with Lenin the same way and just found him infuriating until they were just like, okay, you can just have all the control. And prior to that, it was very, very democratic and there were lots of different factions and lots of people argued within the Bolshevik party, you know. Um, what ends up happening in a crisis, and we'll see this in chapter 20 in all its gory detail, is in the face of a crisis, the only thing that people seem to think gets you out of a crisis is absolutely brutal, as in life-snuffing out, variety attenuation in an emergency that pretty much guarantees the emergency continues. I mean, I think the program for any socialist endeavor is to come up with a proletarian, truly democratic system five that can survive a crisis and no one's solved that yet. Yep. It's very, very much, uh, it's, it's very, it's very much the, uh, the riddle of history. Uh, <laughs> how do you construct a, a viable, uh, proletarian multi-node. No. Um, so, uh, my personal feeling is that we should go to the next chapter next session and not dilly-dally with mm -hmm. the, uh, algebra and so on. Um, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. uh, Jeremy, do you, do you have a point there? Mm -hmm. uh, you're muted. I would include very briefly the last four paragraphs at the end where he wraps everything up. Like, I wouldn't touch the decision algebra with a barge pole, but I think the wrap-up is valuable, especially the thing where it talks about the spikes in variety when you're solving problems, because that's something really worth considering. You right. know? That you can start to solve a problem, you're reducing variety, reducing variety, reducing variety, and then suddenly it spikes horrifically upward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yep. that me the mechanics of that is something we should at least touch upon, even if we do it in about five minutes. Okay, so we'll do uh, last four paragraphs of this chapter, and then we'll move on to the next one, uh, next session. Mm -hmm. So read the next uh, chapter for the next session, and uh, we will do some uh, more talking about System 5. Uh, thank you, everyone, for participating. Bye, Bye. Later.